This is CNN Breaking News. Today on Inside Politics, a big development on hostage negotiations. President Biden said a deal to free the more than 200 hostages held by Hamas is, quote, going to happen. This comes as a senior U.S. official familiar with the talks tells CNN that Israel and Hamas are moving closer to a deal. I want to get straight to CNN's MJ Lee, who was in San Francisco uh, with the president, waiting for him at least. What did the president say and put this into the context along with other reporting that you and our colleagues have? Yeah, Dana, you heard from President Biden, who is making his way now here to San Francisco for his summit with Xi Jinping, uh, expressing a sense of optimism that a deal could be reached to get the hostages out of Gaza. And this was echoed in part by a U.S. senior official that I was speaking with earlier, uh, who said that Israel and Hamas are moving closer to a deal to secure the release of these hostages. But this official, it's important to note, caution that it's closer, but it's not done essentially saying closer does not mean that they are necessarily close. Uh, now, in terms of the broad parameters of the deal that we are talking about, uh, we're talking about a large group of hostages being released out of Gaza in exchange for a number of Palestinian prisoners that Israel is holding. Uh, and while all of this is going on, there would presumably be a sustained pause in fighting that I am told could last as long as five days. But a lot of these details are still being worked out. And Dana, just to give you a sense, of the potential sticking points and really how fraught these negotiations have been. Uh, we are told that Israel had at one point requested that 100 hostages be released. And then we saw, of course, Hamas's military wing saying that what they are discussing uh, is the possible release of some 70 uh, women and children. So uh, one Israeli official sort of summing this up as uh, Hamas is pushing to release as few hostages as possible for the longest ceasefire possible. Uh, there have, of course, uh, also been serious concerns about how to actually execute this in a safe way, uh, given that Gaza is under constant bombardment. And that is just one of the many things that these parties that have been uh, negotiating over the potential release of these hostages that they have been working on day to day for the past couple of weeks. But again, just sensing a little bit of optimism, at least from the American side, including from the president himself. Dan. Yeah, I mean, when the president says, quote, it's going to, well, it's, quote, going to happen, uh, that's a big deal to hear from the president of the United States. But you are, of course, right to uh, put some caution out there as we report this, given the fact that you have been doing reporting. I've been talking to sources, as have many of our colleagues, uh, since these hostages were taken, in particular the last couple of weeks as the talks have heated up, where uh, they thought that they were close. I thought that they were almost there. And then the negotiations fall apart. So we do have to keep that uh, very much in mind. But you're right, there are so many uh, important and specific and complicated uh, aspects to this. Uh, first and foremost is how many uh, Hamas is going to agree to release. We hope uh, just for humankind that they release all of the hostages, uh, but also how physically that would happen and how long Israel would agree to a quote-unquote pause for that to happen, because all of those are factors that are, are going to have to be discussed and finalized before anything takes place. 
Yeah, and, and I think, Dana, you make a really good point. Uh, this is a kind of refrain that we have heard over and over again uh, the last few weeks from sources that are familiar with these talks, that they have been close before, but a deal obviously has not been struck yet. And just to give you one more sense of why these talks have been so incredibly complicated, uh, the pure aspect of actually communicating with Hamas has been incredibly challenging. This is not some regular negotiating actor and partner that you were talking about. Even just getting messages uh, to Hamas has been very complicated. We know uh, that is why the Qataris in particular have been playing uh, a lead role in all of this, trying to sort of play the mediating role uh, so that they understand exactly what's going on. Uh, there's also just the question of can uh, Hamas be even a trusted partner in all of this? I think U.S. officials uh, have shown a lot of skepticism that at any moment, any information that they're getting from Hamas, any assurances that they essentially can't be trusted. So uh, that is just another sense of uh, why these talks have been incredibly fraught. Of course, U.S. officials, again, have been working around the clock. A little bit of optimism that we're hearing from the president. Uh, but again, officials really caution until a deal is made and until they see hostages physically get out, uh, they're not going to be sighing any uh, sighing relief uh, until they really see that these hostages are physically out of Gaza. Yeah, and so much of what uh, has been going on behind the scenes has kind of been playing out some of the posturing that we have seen publicly uh, from the, the prime minister, from members of his team, and also uh, from others in the Arab world about how to kind of play this, because you're exactly right, MJ. Uh, there is absolutely no uh, trusting in, in Hamas in particular. I mean, they're quite literally terrorists. So the notion of negotiating with terrorists is what we're talking about here, which is why the Qataris and others who do have a line, even in the case of, uh, of Qatar, they have uh, senior Hamas leaders who are living in their country. And so um, this, is, this is certainly potentially a moment and we're gonna keep on it. Thank you so much for that reporting. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, MJ. And I wanted to turn to a very much related story here in Washington, and that is tens of thousands of Americans who are gathering on the National Mall right now. You're looking at live pictures uh, from the rally for Israel more than five weeks after 1,200 innocent civilians were brutally massacred by Hamas terrorists. I want to go to Gabe Cohen, who is there on the mall, and Gabe, uh, part uh, another part of the uh, reason why these this rally is happening today gabe is a to push back on anti-semitism that is rising but b to remind the world that these hostages are still being held by hamas and there are family members many of them who flew to the united states and are where you are on the mall they came from israel in order to make sure that the world doesn't forget that their loved ones are being held by hamas still yeah, Dana, that's right. They are just on this. They are just part of this long list of speakers uh, that we're going to see when this program gets underway at one o'clock. And we are still seeing the massive crowd pouring onto this huge section of the mall, about a mile long, now fenced off. Uh, people coming from all over the country and, as you mentioned, all over the world. I've met people uh, from Ohio, from Georgia, Massachusetts, Florida, California, who all wanted to be here uh, to take part in this event. Organizers think it is going to be the largest 
gathering of Jewish American communities in recent history. And they were really intentional and strategic with their language and that list of speakers as they were putting uh, this event together, really toning down the rhetoric, trying to create, as they put it, a, a really a wide tent, a big tent of unity and support, trying to bring together uh, Jewish organizations from across the political spectrum. They said there are really three points of focus here. One is showing solidarity with uh, Israel and the Israeli people. Uh, one is, as you mentioned, combating anti-Semitism and, and the incidents that we have seen in recent weeks across the country and really across the world. And third, uh, to call for a release of the Israeli hostages still being held in Gaza. And just a few minutes ago, I met a woman in the crowd uh, who says she went to school, to high school, with Omer Nutra, a Long Island native who is now being held in Gaza. Uh, here's what she said about why she came down today. Okay, looks like we don't have that sound, sound Dana, but she talked about uh, Omer and, and uh, his impact on her and who he was as a person, and she felt that she should be here uh, to support her community, and, and we know that they, there is a lot of concern about security here, and we will see uh, as this gets underway if that same message of unity, that rhetoric, uh, is matched by the speakers on that stage. Yeah, I mean, it's such an important point. I know we didn't get to hear from uh, the Omer that who you talked to, but the fact that so many people uh, in the United States and around the world are either know somebody who was killed or is held or know somebody who knows somebody. I mean, the community is the Jewish community is quite small, uh, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Gabe, thank you so much for that reporting. Appreciate it. And Gabe mentioned the security concerns, the understandable cons concerns that uh, law enforcement was focused on as they were preparing for this very large rally here in Washington today. I want to go to Shimon Prokupes, who is also there, focused on security. What are you seeing and hearing at this moment? What are you hearing from your law enforcement sources, Shimon? Look, there is, you know, there is certainly some concern, right, given the event, given what's going on across the country as it relates to the protests and anti-Semitism. So there's a lot of concern because you're going to have so many people here gathered in one area. I mean, we could see up to 100,000 people here. So for law enforcement, this is a major concern. Uh, it's the, they're on the highest of alerts here. Uh, as you can see behind me here, I want to show you uh, the National Guard is even here. They've placed National Guard troops at some of these intersections to deal with uh, traffic, but also the security. They're also using these dumpster trucks uh, so that, uh, you know, in case some cars wanted to come through here. So they have that extra layer of security, Dana. But I also want to show you here, this is where people are going in. You could see this is where people who are attending the rally here, this event, this is where they're streaming in. And then once they go down here, there's a security area. They have to go through magnetometers. They can't bring anything, backpacks, anything else, uh, anything that you would sort of expect at a large event like a Super Bowl, New Year's Eve in Times Square. Same security measures here. Uh, for now, everything's been safe. Everything's been uh, pretty good. Law enforcement is out here. There's a lot of them here, uh, and they're going to continue to be out here. And just as this event should get underway here around 1 o'clock. Okay, thank you so much. Obviously, uh, it's nice that they're treating it like a Super Bowl. Unlike a Super Bowl, uh, this is a, a group of people who are being threatened by uh, not just rallies, by aggressive protests and violence uh, across the world. Thank you so much for that, Shimon.
Now we're going to go elsewhere in Washington, up to Capitol Hill, a very different kind of story, one that I never thought we would be reporting on. But we're talking about a fight, not just a rhetorical fight, a political fight, an actual alleged fight with elbowing and shoving and one member of Congress chasing over after a former Speaker of the House. That is what Congressman Tim Burchett is accusing uh, the former Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, of doing. What he is accusing McCarthy of doing is of elbowing him in the kidney. Now, remember, Burchett is one of eight House Republicans who voted to oust McCarthy from his speakership last month. CNN's Manu Raju is live on, the, uh, on Capitol Hill. Manu, you spoke with Burchett not long after this incident. What's going on? Yeah, pretty surreal moment. I mean, all unprecedented moments we're seeing here in the United States Capitol. Of course, first starting with the ouster of Kevin McCarthy, something that never happened before, but it's happened more than a month ago. But the tension is still lingering within the Republican conference. You heard Kevin McCarthy just a few days ago telling me that he is still angry at several of those members and apparently taking it out in physical ways, at least according to Tim Burchett, who said that he was one of those eight Republicans who voted to, to oust Kevin McCarthy and in the hallways of the Capitol, accusing McCarthy of taking a shot to his kidneys, a sucker punch, then chasing him down the hallway and engaging in a heated confrontation with the former speaker, something this former speaker denies, but Burchett says it happened. Explain to us what happened with you and Kevin McCarthy. Well, I was doing an interview um, with um, Claudia from NPR, a, a lovely lady, and she was asking me a question. And, and at that time, I uh, got elbowed in the back, and it kind of caught me off guard because it was a clean shot to the kidneys. And I turned back, and there was there was Kevin. And um, and I, I, for a minute, I was kind of, what the heck just happened? And then I, um, you know, I, I chased after him, of course. He's a... Uh, as I've stated many times, he's a he's a bully with $17 million in a security detail. You know, he's the type of guy that, when you're a kid, would throw a rock over the fence and run home and hide behind his mama's skirt. And he just, you know, he he uh, from behind that kind of stuff. It, you know, that's not the way we handle things in East Tennessee. We, we if we have a problem with somebody, I'm gonna look him in the eye and, and talk to him. Okay, so he walked down the hallway, hit you in his with his elbow. Yeah, you, you can you can go on Claudia's. Twitter account, it, it, it pretty much, um, or X account, it, right. it, it's, it's very accurate. But, okay, so then just explain. So you chased him? What, what do you mean you chased well, him? I just ran after him. I was like, what the heck? You know, why'd you do that? You know, because it was, uh, like I said, it, if you've ever been hit in the kidneys, it's a little little different. You don't have to hit very hard to cause a little bit of pain, a lot of pain. And and so I, and he just, of course, um, as he always did, does, he just uh, denies it or uh, blame somebody else or something, you know, and it was just a little heated, but I just backed off because there wasn't any, I saw no reason. I wasn't gaining anything from it. And then everybody saw it, so it didn't really matter. Like he responded to you? Yeah, yeah, he just acted like, you know, what are you talking about? You know, who are you to, you know, that kind of thing. And it's just, you know, I think that's that's symptomatic of the problems that he, he's had in his short tenure as speaker and were you face to face when you had this interaction yeah, yeah but there's security detail and i get it they had to, they were doing their job so it wasn't exactly like he didn't he wouldn't turn around and face me he he kept scurrying trying to keep people between me and him and then so where did he, where he yell, were you i just let it go at that point it wasn't yelling uh, he, he was yeah i raised my voice to him i thought it was appropriate and you know, i just don't expect 
a guy who was at one time three steps away from the White House to sucker su- hit you with a sucker punch in the, in the in the hallway. And did he raise his voice back to you? Yeah, just that high pitched kind of thing, I, I believe, and that was about it. And did he walk into his office? How did this happen? No, he just kept on walking down the hall. I don't know where his office is now. And he went on to say that he is still in pain from what he calls a, quote, sucker punch. Now, Kevin McCarthy denied this in a conversation with our colleague Melanie Zanona, saying that, quote, I didn't shove or elbow him. It's a tight hallway. And I just asked the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, about whether he witnessed it or whether he has any comment. He said he didn't see it and declined to comment. Dana. I mean, I'm just reading some of, he talked about Claudia Grisales, who's uh, an excellent reporter at NPR. She has the quotes because she was there. Burchette said, you got no guts. Uh, what kind of chicken move is that? You're pathetic, man. You're so pathetic. And then said, uh, when McCarthy started to walk away, he, he said to the reporter, Claudia, what a jerk. You need security, Kevin, screaming after the former speaker. I mean, wow. Uh, meanwhile, that happened. But there actually is some important business that is going on in those halls where you are, which is keeping the government open or at least trying. Give us a report on that, Manu. Yeah, and look, this all ties back to Kevin McCarthy. Remember that he pushed through a measure to keep the government open, did not have spending cuts. He needed Democrats to get it over the finish line. That led to his ouster, led by Congressman Matt Gates and people like Tim Burchett, as well as other seven, eight total Republicans voting with Democrats to do just that. The new speaker, Mike Johnson, essentially doing the same tactic, actually putting forward a bill on the floor to keep the government open, no spending cuts attached to it, needs Democratic supports to get it over the finish line, and but doing something a little bit different, that some of the federal agencies would be extended until mid-January, others till February, but no spending cuts, and that has prompted significant out, uh, pushback from his right flank. But, Dana, we do expect Democrats to eventually carry this over the finish line later today. It's expected to pass the Senate before they head home for Friday. But Mike Johnson told me he is not concerned about the security of his speakership in the aftermath of this move. Dana. I mean, I I wish there's so much to unpack with all of this, but uh, the the news is definitely out there. And Manu, appreciate you giving it all to us and, of course, grabbing uh, Congressman Burchett there to get his rendition of, of what happened. Thank you. Thanks, Anna. And coming up, Donald Trump's campaign pushes back on reporting about the radical immigration policies a second term would allegedly bring. Three words they aren't saying, it's not true. We'll explain after a break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Donald Trump's campaign is trying to downplay reports of some controversial plans for a potential second Trump term. The New York Times first reported these details, which CNN confirmed about Trump's 2025 immigration plans should he be president again. That included large-scale arrests of undocumented immigrants, detention camps, and travel bans. In a statement issued last night, the Trump campaign says reports about personnel and policies that are specific to a second Trump administration are purely speculative and theoretical unless a second-term priority is articulated by President Trump himself or is officially communicated by the campaign. It is not authorized in any way. Here to share their reporting and insights, Sungmin Kim of the Associated Press, Leanne Caldwell of the Washington Post, CNN's Eva McKend, along with CNN legal and national security analyst, Carrie Cordero. Hello, everybody. Nice to see you. Good to see you. Well, um, <clears throat> this is a very interesting developed, development to me because in covering uh, Donald Trump's campaign and then his presidency and then his post-presidency and then his campaign, it's not very often that they come out, even in the most controversial of um, stories about what his policies or potential policies would be, and say, no, 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 that's not true. Right, right. And, and again, they didn't say it's not true here, but the pushback on what we're talking about is noteworthy because they don't do that very often. Right, right. And I will point out, particularly with the immigration details, which you just mentioned, um, Stephen Miller, his former uh, White House advisor and widely seen as the architect of these draconian immigration policies, was quoted in the Times article saying that the, the President Trump will unleash the vast arsenal of federal powers to enact these immigration policies. I think what's happening here in part is actually a classic uh, Trump trait. He doesn't kind of like it when other people feed off him and kind of profit or benefit from him. So I think some of it is his him and his people saying we don't want kind of these outside groups coming in yeah. and trying to take advantage of us. That, I think that's part of it. That's such a good point, because there are a lot of outside groups who are writing position papers and policy right. papers and, you know, sort of um, chomping at the bit for Trump to get back into office so that they can continue to push some of these really draconian notions. Yeah, I mean, it's not all that surprising, some of these policies, because when the former president was in office, he stressed our institutions. He telegraphed that he wanted to do a lot of this, and we know that there were essentially bureaucrats in the way. You know, now there are entities like the America First Policy Institute uh, filled with folks at the ready to be deployed uh, if he is to be reelected. Okay, but Carrie, let's listen to Donald Trump in his own words. And this is him talking both in November so this month and then earlier this fall in September. We will begin the largest domestic deportation operation in American history. It's poisoning the blood of our country. Uh, it's so bad. And people are coming in with disease. People are coming in with, with every possible thing that you can have. 
poisoning the blood of our country. Right. Okay. So first of all, let's separate out and just acknowledge um, the nature of that kind of language, which is uh, xenophobic, which is in line with the types of policies that he tried to do last time with respect to the Muslim ban and keeping out just certain kinds of people because that he thinks appeals uh, politically and that is the type of policy that he wants to implement. So setting that piece aside, substantively this is very similar to the types of things he tried to do before and the pattern that he used was to do things through executive order. He has wide authority uh, when he is the executive to be able to issue orders implement these types of policies and then see how far back the courts will push him. And so that's what we saw during his first term is that pattern of activity. What's the answer about the courts? And so in some circumstances, the courts will push back uh, to a certain degree. And really, if we look over um, the past several years through the Trump administration, it really is the judiciary that was able to hold the line and protect institutions more than the executive branch really in many circumstances was able to protect itself. And now the judiciary is has more Trump appointees. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to agree with him. In right. fact, we've seen on issue after issue that they haven't, but it is a difference. Yeah, he Donald Trump did a very good job confirming a record number of appointees of the judicial system at the Supreme Court on down. But Donald Trump in his first term had people who were stopping him and pushing back. You had his chief of staff, you had Attorney General Bill Barr, and Trump has said that he made a mistake in his first term by appointing people who did not agree with him and allow him to do whatever he wanted wholeheartedly. And so now if he is, conf if he is elected, perhaps he's going to take a very different route and um, hire people and appoint people who won't push back and will engage and allow him to do and what that, he wants to and do. And that's going to be a, a huge uh, part of the conversation if he does, in fact, get the nomination and there's a general election campaign, a rematch. Uh, thanks, everybody. Stand by because today President Biden is traveling to California. We heard that at the top of the hour. He's going for a high stakes meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping. Ahead, we have some new reporting on a potential breakthrough between those two leaders on a key issue. Stay with us. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Just a few moments ago, President Biden left the White House to head to California, where he'll meet with Chi Chinese President Xi Jinping. The trip comes at a key time for both world leaders, hoping to repair a very frayed relationship between China and the U.S., the U.S. is hoping to at least come away with an agreement to crack down on the export of chemicals used to make fentanyl. I want to bring back my panel to discuss this. And um, Eva, I just want people to look at something that may be surprising to some, maybe not to others. Uh, the latest CNN poll about who's the best or most effective world leader versus Trump versus Bush. Excuse me, Trump versus Biden. I was just talking about Bush in the break. Um, Look at that. Trump does pretty well compared to Joe Biden. He does, according to that data point. This is a very tricky area for the president because he has to appear tough, I think, to appease uh, some of the, the Republican criticism, but at the same time not exacerbate um, tensions with China. He already has enough on his plate when it comes to international issues, whether it's Ukraine or Israel. But the, the 
tough talk from Republicans on China is extreme. Like, just go out on the campaign trail. It wasn't long ago when Senator Scott, who has now dropped out, suggested at an event that Chinese students studying here should uh, receive an extra layer of surveillance because they could be reporting back to the government. So that is what President Biden is up against in trying to combat uh, what Republicans are sort of uh, putting him in this corner on this issue. Yeah, that's such a good point. I had Bush on my brain because we were talking <laughs> during the break about when I covered uh, the 43rd president, George W. Bush. And I remember when he would meet with Chinese leaders, there was an effort to to kind of show them how it's done with the press and sort of show what a free democracy and free press is. This is something that David Sanger, our, our friend over at the New York Times, reported about what's going to happen with this trip. He said, when President Biden meets with President Xi Jinping on Wednesday, China's diplomats want to know what Mr. Xi will be looking at and to make sure the scenery does not include protesters. Nearly every minute they spend together from the number of steps it will take Mr. Xi to reach a, a chair when he enters the room to specific timing of their handshake will be part of a highly choreographed diplomatic dance, one designed to give them the space to try to diffuse a year of bubbling tensions. That last part of that last sentence is mm -hmm. key, Carrie. Well, you see here the tensions between uh, someone, a leader who's coming from an authoritarian uh, country where he can dictate the way every single thing occurs uh, versus what happens in a somewhat messy democracy from time to time. And so uh, the idea of having protesters behind, her would, behind him would be something that would you know, never happen in China. And so to the extent, uh, as David's reporting seems to be inferring, that the administration is going to try to accommodate in some ways, maybe different than uh, when you were covering a prior administration, they are going to try to make this a productive conversation. And the goal is not to get hung up on details that might uh, make it harder, but instead try to really make it a productive conversation because the environment has been so tense. And that story from David is really interesting. I covered uh, President Biden's last meeting with President Xi in Bali, and everything really is like this perfect little dance. Like every step has a purpose. You have President Biden coming from this door at this time, and then President Xi coming out. There's the handshake. We, I, All of this is very intentional for a very specific reason. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see how all that transpires tomorrow. And I want to go back to Eva's point about, um, about just kind of the tough on tone that we've been hearing from the broader Republican Party, not just on the campaign trail, but on Capitol Hill, there is one exception to that, and that is the former president. I mean, he was out there praising mm -hmm. Xi Jinping. This is something that he has done throughout his first term in office, and he does take a different tone that, a than point. what uh, primary voters are asking for. About the meeting specifically tomorrow, what's really interesting is all the reporting has said that they are really trying to lower expectations, this Biden White House, on what's going to come out of it. Because really the goal is actually to ensure that there is no escalation of, of tensions, which has been extremely high. And so non-escalation rather than actually accomplishing something are two very different things. Although the National Security Advisor did say they want to just do something basic like restore communication between militaries, right. which is a huge, huge yeah. deal. Mm -hmm. Guys, thank you so much. And as we mentioned earlier in the program, right now tens of thousands are gathered on the National Mall to march in support for Israel. Coming up next, I'll speak to Israel's special envoy for anti-Semitism about the fight against hate across the world, including here in the United States. 
Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Agnello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. Since the Hamas brutal terrorist attack on October 7th, anti-Semitic incidents and rhetoric have exploded worldwide. From Vienna, Austria, where a Jewish section of a cemetery was set on fire and desecrated with swastikas to a Jewish school in Montreal that was hit by gunfire twice in one week. What may have started as criticism of the Israeli government's policies has turned into blatant anti-Semitic acts that have Jews around the world very afraid. Right now, thousands are here in Washington marching in support of Israel and against anti-Semitism. Joining me now is Michal Kotler-Wunsch, Israel's special envoy for anti-Semitism. Thank you so much for being here. Um, you know, it's definitely a march in support of Israel, but this is a show called Inside Politics, so let's just be um, sort of blunt about it. Part of the challenge for uh, the Biden administration is the very uh, big divide and the growing divide inside his own party on how to handle Israel. And a lot of the undercurrent there, it's not even undercurrent, it's, it's, it's out in the open, is anti-Semitism. And how much of that is playing into what we're seeing on the mall? So I want to be really clear, 10-7 has nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do with land. It has nothing to do with a dispute with the Palestinians. 10-7 was uh, a day of um, reminder for all of us for what it was that the atrocities of the Holocaust held. Burning, mutilating, raping, abducting thousands of civilians. That's what happened on 10-7, like 9-11. This is not about politics. What we see at that rally today is not only about Israel and the imperative to enable a democratic country like the United States after 9-11 to defend its civilians. It's not only about Jews around the world that are now being attacked, as you've just shown. It's actually about the foundational principles of life and of liberty. Anybody that cannot condemn 10-7 unequivocally does not understand that it is a war that was waged not just on Israel, not just on Jews, but actually on our shared civilization, on our shared humanity. The atrocities of that day, that magnitude of the atrocities, can't be overlooked and can't be forgotten. No question. Uh, and they should not be forgotten. And uh, you're right. Uh, I mean, we should all remember that from the river to the sea is in Hamas's charter. And what they mean is, among other things, to eradicate not just Israel, but Jews. And, and that is a really important thing the, the, the problem is that, uh, let's just talk about what's happening here in the United States. That is not understood, A, and B, because of that, there is, I mean, you're seeing the pressure, the political pressure on President Biden, who I know uh, most people in Israel are so thankful for, for his support. And so how do you kind of square that when you look at the fundamental fear that Jews do have around the world and your mission to address that? So what's really important, and the reason that I'm on this third emergency trip to North America, is what's really important is to understand that the very same anti-Semitism 
that fueled the atrocities of 10-7 that we just spoke of is the same anti-Semitism that fuels the responses to 10-7 that deny, that justify, that support that then, in their wake, attack Jews around the world. And when I say that very same anti-Semitism, we have to be very clear, as an ancient hatred, the current, mutated, modern, mainstream strain of anti-Semitism, that of anti-Zionism, or the denial of Israel's right to exist in any borders, and you just said it, right? From the river to the sea, for anybody who looks at the map, is the entire thing. That's a call to annihilate the state of Israel and murder its Jews. That is not what's known as a two-state solution. And the importance of understanding that right now is part of the urgency that I think that all democracies have to understand, including the United States that has seen on campuses across this country in demonstrations on streets. And let us not forget Paul Kessler, who was murdered in a demonstration holding an Israeli flag in LA. This is a critical moment for all democracies, and we have to speak up and speak out against the various places in which this war has been raging for decades that turned Zionism into, into, into racism, excuse me, and Israel into an apartheid state, and worse, in the most Orwellian inversion, Israel into the per per perpetrator of Holocaust and of genocide, when on 10-7, the makings of a genocide were perpetrated against Israelis. Speak up, speak out. Silence is, is not an option. Silence is complicity, and that is uh, such an important message that I've, I've learned uh, in studying this, and I'm so glad that you came on to do this. I know you've got to go over to the march to, to give a speech, but thank you for coming on. Thank you, Dana, and just to remind everybody that never again is right now. Thank you. Appreciate you. Moments ago, in New York City, Mayor Eric Adams addressed allegations that his campaign misused funds linked to possible favors and foreign influence. What he had to say, next. Moments ago, New York City Mayor Eric Adams said that he is fully cooperating as the FBI investigates whether his office misused campaign money and possible foreign influence. This is an ongoing review. And as a former member of law enforcement, uh, it is always my review, it's always my belief, don't interfere with an ongoing review and don't try to do these reviews, uh, you know, through the press. You know, uh, we are fully cooperating uh, with whatever uh, the reviewers are looking for. We are fully co cooperating with it. And my role is to allow them to do their job without interference. And I have to do my job of continuing to make sure the city navigate the various issues that we, that we are facing. CNN's Gloria Pasmino has been following this and joins us live outside of City Hall. Gloria, what's the latest? Well, Dana, it was actually uh, quite surprising just to see how many times uh, the mayor avoided answering any questions today. And in many ways, we are learning more about how this is unfolding by the way he responded to the press today. He was asked over and over today about the investigation and the city's chief counsel multiple times stepping in to answer on his behalf. There were two key questions that the mayor did not answer today, and that is whether he has been interviewed as part of this investigation and whether or not anyone else in his administration has been interviewed. He also would not say if anyone else's electronic devices have been seized by the FBI. We know the mayor's electronic devices were seized 
uh, as part of this investigation last week. Dana, there was one thing that the mayor did say today, and he acknowledged that he had reached out to the fire commissioner back in September of 2021. At this point, he wasn't mayor yet, but he was the Democratic nominee and might as well have been the mayor. He uh, admitted that he had reached out to the commissioner to get him to help and fast track a fire safety certificate for the Turkish consulate. But he said that that is just routine, what officials do and are expected to do. Uh, so, like I said, the way he didn't answer questions is quite telling. Telling uh, my colleague Mark Morales at one point that we were getting ahead of ourselves by asking if he would resign, should he be charged with any crime. Uh, and certainly just, again, repeating that he is trying to avoid interfering in the investigation. So interesting. Thank you so much for that reporting, Gloria. Appreciate it. And thank you so much for joining Inside Politics. CNN News Central starts after the break. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.